Sometimes you have a book and it, it has a title and then, and then you'll see like a colon and a subtitle. Right? So the title's kind of short, but the subtitle makes it longer. And then on, on rare occasions, you'll have a title and a, a subtitle and then an alternate title. You know, it's this or that kind of thing. What, one book that's like that is, is a little book I love by Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something. Subtitle, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will. Now that's fine enough, but then it has an alternate, alternate title too. So the, the full title is Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will. Or How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers, Writing in the Sky, etc. Now that's a mouthful. Almost ran out of ink just on the cover, I imagine, right? But I thought of that book this week as I began to prepare to preach on Psalm 60, our text for today. And the reason I thought of that book was because Psalm 60 has, uh, you might notice in your Bible, a superscript title above it that is actually the longest title of any of the Psalms. Some Psalms don't have any titles listed above them, but some of them have titles, and this one has the longest of all of them. Psalm 60, to the choir master, according to the Shushan Eduth, a miktam of David, for instruction. When he strove with Aram Naharaim, and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab, on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Wow, that's wordy too, isn't it? Well, it's important, though, that we have all of those things in there because they provide a historical context for this psalm. They help us to see what was actually going on and, and so we can understand better what David is writing when he writes this. Uh, the essential context of it is found in 2 Samuel 8 and 1 Chronicles 18. And in that, those passages, we, we see that, that things are are going pretty well for David and his kingdom and he's he's leading battles in the north and having wild victories and successes but then all of a sudden in the midst of this Edom sneaks in in the south and starts to defeat the people of God and it seems against this backdrop as defeat is coming their way that God has rejected them and so in light of that, in the midst of this all, David writes the 60th psalm. We're going to take a look at this psalm, but let's first ask God to open our eyes and quicken our hearts and our minds that we might better know his desires for us. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we do ask you to be with us now. We ask that you speak to us through your living and active word and that you would Help us to know you better because of this time. And as we know you better, how can we help but love you more? For you are a good and gracious and loving Father who has given us far more than we deserve, who steadfastly is faithful to us, even as we turn and flee from you, even as we doubt and waver even as we are unfaithful. We thank you 
We pray that you would help us to know your will for us now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now Psalm 60. This is the inspired word of God. O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness with exaltation. I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin upon Edom. I cast my shoe over Philistia. I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You know, sometimes I feel like in the, in the church, amongst Christians, we, we have this expectation that we should always have a smile on our face, that we should always be happy, that we should never allow even even the slightest shadow of, of doubt or sadness or sorrow to come into our lives. Sometimes we feel like this is what we deserve. And even if we don't feel like this is what we deserve, I think sometimes we, we suggest that in light of the gospel, we should certainly be this way. You know, you even see it in our hymnody sometimes. And the hymn, Trust and Obey, it's in our hymnal. Uh, we don't sing it a lot. And part of that is because of this sentiment. Uh, the, the second verse says, Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt, nor a fear, not a sigh, nor a tear can abide while we trust and obey. It seems to say that, that if we just trust and obey God, if we just do what he says and follow him and trust in him, there'll be no sadness, there'll be no sorrow, all the time we'll be happy all the time nothing but smiles and joy but our own experience belies this doesn't it even at those times when we are faithfully walking with the lord seeking after him with all of our hearts we face difficulties we face trials sometimes they're tiny things sometimes they're giant things life and death things the reality is we face troubles even as we follow God. It's kind of what we looked at in Ecclesiastes when we 
recently studied through that book, isn't it? We live in a broken and fallen world, and in such a world, there is a time for laughter, a time for dancing, but there is also a time for mourning and a time for weeping. And so David comes to us with this psalm that he has written for instruction, we read in the title. For instruction. It's actually the only time in all the psalms that those words show up in in the title of a psalm. This is for instruction, to instruct us how we are, I believe, to, to live life in the face of disappointment, in the face of difficulty, in the face of even feeling like God is far from us. How ought we to live our lives? There are certain things that David tells us in this Psalms that we are to remember. I think we're supposed to remember God's sovereignty. We're supposed to remember his love. We're supposed to remember his faithfulness. First of all, his sovereignty. We can see in the very first verses of of this Psalm, can we not? We see this report repeated, you, you, you. Oh God, you have rejected us. You have broken our defenses. You have been angry. You have made the land quake. You have torn it open. You have made our people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. David makes no equivocation on the matter at all, does he? He says it is God who has done these things. He could have written it differently, right? He could have just said, Oh God, we feel rejected. Our defenses have been broken. The land is quaking and torn apart. We have seen hard things. It would have been no less true, and yet it would have missed the point. It is God who is doing these things. He is sovereignly acting in and through these things. It's not just that they happened. We need to realize why they happened. They happened because the hand of God was active. And some don't like that. Sometimes I don't like that. When I have a hard thing come my way, it's hard for me to say, well, that's coming from the hand of God for whatever reason. It can be discomforting, can't it? You ask yourself, how can I pray to a God who is sovereign over even the bad things in my life. And I would push back against that by simply asking you this, what's the point in praying to him if he's not sovereign over them? For if he's not sovereign over them, he can do nothing about them. It is actually a comfort if we take it in the right mindset that God is sovereign over them and we need to realize that just because we don't like what he's doing that doesn't mean that he isn't doing it sometimes he has his reasons actually always he has his reasons sometimes we're able to understand them sometimes we understand them you have made the land quake he says you have turned torn it open sometimes god shakes our world so that we need to cling to him right you know just imagine i've never been in an earthquake uh, if you've lived out in California, perhaps you've probably had one, but, but I've, I've seen the videos, the pictures, and I can imagine if we were all of a sudden hit with an earthquake right here as I'm speaking, what I would do is I would grab this and hold on, right? Because, because we'd be shaky. I don't want to fall down. I, I reach out and grab something steady, something solid, something sturdy. And God sometimes shakes our world 
so that we would reach out and hold on to him. For he is steady and sturdy and solid. He wants us to reach out to him and grasp him so that we might not fall even as the land quakes and is torn open. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that has made us stagger, he says in verse 3. So you see, sometimes God is chastening us in the midst of our, our sin. This isn't always why hard things come our way, but sometimes it is. That's, it's language that the prophets often used here, giving a cup of staggering. It's, it's a cup that, that God brings, a cup of judgment, essentially. Right? His cup of judgment makes us stagger. And see, we, we need to realize that, that God's, God's chastisement against us, his, his discipline is a hard thing at times. And it's, it's painful at times. It hurts. And yet it can be a good thing for us. Behold, Job writes, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. The reality is, though, that oftentimes we, we don't understand what God is doing, right? He, he is doing things that we don't understand. And that's where David seems to be. He says, oh, God, you have rejected us. You've broken our defenses. You've been angry. And rejection is a terrible thing, isn't it? It really doesn't matter what kind of rejection it is. It could be uh, you interviewed for a job and you were rejected, right? Or you, you're you're an aspiring author and you sent off your manuscript to a publisher and they sent back a letter saying, sorry. You, you applied to a college and they said, your grades aren't quite good enough. We'd rather you not come to our school. You ask a girl out on a date and she's, sorry. <laughs> Rejection's not fun. It really doesn't matter what kind of rejection it is but the worst of all rejection would be to be rejected by God and that's how David feels here we don't want to be rejected by God we we long above all else I think to be known and accepted right we want both of these things together right because because sometimes people accept us but they don't really know us right you know, oh Pete he's a, he he he's all right with us okay come on that's great but but there's this aching in my heart because you don't really know me when you say that. Or on the other hand, right, perhaps even worse, you do know me <laughs> and you reject me because of that. Right? But what, what we long is to be, to be known and accepted, brought together. And so when David says here that he feels as if God has rejected them, it, it's a devastating idea and if the psalm ended there it would well it'd be very short first of all because it's the first verse but beyond that it would be very devastating in that to be rejected by God is a terrible thing a few weeks back we looked at psalm 22 and we saw Jesus didn't we on the cross my God my God why have you forsaken me and we're reminded that that he said that. He actually endured that. He went through the actual being forsaken by his heavenly father so that we might never actually need to if only we trust in him. 
So even though we feel forsaken, we feel rejected at times, we can know that we are not because Jesus has endured that for us already. And so even amidst these troubles, this this brokenness, this this feeling of rejection, this, this shaking of the world around him, the hard things that he's seen, the the judgment and discipline that he's had to endure, we see that God is sovereign over something else. In verse 4, he says, You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. A banner, right? It's, it's in the midst of a battle, a, a banner or a flag that is held high so that the people fighting for that side might see where their side is, that they might be encouraged by it, that they might be strengthened by it, that they might rally around it. I think back to a number of years ago when Aaron and I went to Fort McHenry, right? And we, we saw the fort where, where the flag flew that, that Francis Scott Key saw, right? In the, and, and in the middle of the night, the battle was raging on and and it was by the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in air that he could see that our flag was still there. And so when he saw that flag, it, it buoyed his spirits. And, and with him, those who, who were fighting, they saw it, the flag stood. It was that banner, that star-spangled banner was there. They could rally around that. And that's the idea that David's talking about here, where, where he says that you have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it, right? There's a banner that God has set up that even in the midst of bombs bursting all around us, even in the midst of rockets exploding, even in the midst of enemies attacking and battles raging on, we can see this banner that he has set. We can be encouraged by it. We can be strengthened by it. We can flee to it and be in communion with him. What is that banner? What is that banner? Well, if we look back to Exodus 17, we read Moses builds an altar. And he calls it Jehovah Nisi. Jehovah Nisi, that's Hebrew for the Lord is our banner. See, that banner that the Lord has set that we might rally around it is himself. He is the banner. And we know more than Moses did when he said that about that altar way back in Exodus 17. We even know more than David did when he wrote this psalm. We know that the banner, that the Lord, is actually Christ Jesus. Correct? We know that it is Jesus who is the Son of God who has come to, to be that banner for us. So, so we can look to him and we can flee to the cross when there's trial around us, when there's difficulty around us, when there's accusations against our soul that Satan is lobbing at us. We can fly to the cross and we can have comfort and peace because our sins were paid for there. We can flee to the empty tomb of our Savior and know that death has been conquered there. So even amidst sickness and pain and sorrow and mourning and death, we can know that victory is ours as we look to the banner who is our Lord. We can fly to him by the power of the Holy Spirit right to the very right hand of the Father where he sits currently reigning and from whence he will return. 
And that's what's so beautiful about this table. That's what's so beautiful about this table is that in this table, we truly meet with Christ. We truly commune with Christ. We feed on him. And in so doing, we are, are truly brought into the presence of God, not in the understanding that, that the Roman Catholic Church has of, of somehow God is pulled down out of heaven and placed on the table for us, but rather, as, as Calvin said, that, that as we partake of this meal in faith, we are lifted up into the heavenlies so that we might be with God. Don't you want that? Don't you want to be with God? Don't you want to commune with God? Don't you want to be close to him, to partake of him, to be intertwined with your Lord and your Savior, your Maker, your Redeemer, your Sustainer? Don't you want to be with him? That's what this table is for. What a blessing it is. And we can do this all because of his love. That's the second thing we need to remember in the midst of our trials and troubles. There's a sense in which God loves his creation as a whole, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And yet, for those who are his, there is a special love that he has an electing love, an atoning love, a sustaining love, a, a love that we need to remember when troubles abound and we long to be delivered from them. David makes reference to it in verse 5, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. Did you catch it there? He, he says, your beloved ones. <laughs> right? The phrase is key to this whole passage it turns everything and and it unlocks the door to hope in the midst of terrible dread david remembers that he and with him the rest of god's people are the beloved ones of god our god is no power hungry dictator who's just you know cracking the whip at us no he he loves us he loves us as his children. He cares for it. He is compassionate towards us. He, he wants to take care of us. We are his beloved. Derek Kidner puts it this way. He says that that word, the beloved ones, that, that Hebrew word belongs to the language of love poetry. It appeals to the strongest of bonds, the most ardent of relationships. David knows, and we should know as well, that, that we receive this, this language, this love, not because we've earned it, not because we've deserved it, but on the basis of the relationship that God has established. David cries out to God that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us, not because I deserve it, but because we are your beloved, because you have determined it. And he is not disappointed in God's response. It comes to him in an, in an overwhelming sense. Not, not in great and mighty action. right? Not in a giant rushing wind like with Elijah. Not in an earthquake or in a fire. No, but in the power of his word. And it's interesting, isn't it? God's word is powerful. God's word is the means by which he created all things. Right? There was nothing. God said, let there be light. And there was. Just imagine the power of that. To just be able to say, light. Right? 
We're not saying like, you know, hey Siri, you know, hey Alexa, you know, turn on the lights. No, no, it wasn't turn on the lights. There was no light. Light didn't exist. Light. That's power. That's the power of the word of God. He upholds all creation. Now he speaks to us even today. I think it was a wonderful point that Chris made that when he speaks of this small, still voice, that really is Jesus, right? Because who is Jesus but the living word of God? And so he speaks to us today, not so much in a voice that comes to us, that's for us in our independent hearing. No, but rather in the pages of Scripture, right? We, we have the Bible here. And, and in these pages, right here in this book, are words that are his words. And his word is living and active. His word is faithful and true. His word is holy and powerful. And in verse 6, we see that God has spoken in his holiness. David is reminded here specifically of the faithfulness of God. And that's the third thing we need to remember in the face of our troubles is his faithfulness. God says to David, with exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter. And what we see here are the main geographic parts of David's kingdom being laid out before him. But what's important is not so much that this is, this is David's kingdom, but that it's the land of promise. It's the land that had been promised to Abram when he was called out of Ur of the Chaldeas. It's the land that was promised to Moses as he led the people out of exile in Egypt. It was the land and kingdom that was promised to David that he would rule over. So we see Shechem and Succoth. Then Genesis 33, we see that these are the, the first parts of the promised land that were occupied by Jacob and his family as, as they set out and, and would become Israel. We see Gilead is the Israelite territory that is to the east of Jordan. Manasseh kind of straddles the Jordan. And then Ephraim and Judah, the two most powerful tribes. Well, the primary tribes west of Jordan. And, and we see in the language he uses, Ephraim is, is my helmet, signifying the strength of defense, right? The power of, of military strength. And then Judah is my scepter. It's by, by Judah that I rule. That was the center of government, the center of ruling. And just as we saw God's sovereignty in the early verses of this passage, so too we see here that it is God who determines all things. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem. I will portion out the veil of Succoth. Gilead is Mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter. And so it is not just with the promised land, so it is with the enemies of God, Moab and Edom and Philistia, he mentions in verse 8. Moab is my wash basin. He says, he says you know, my wash basin. People, people in the ancient world washed their, their hands and their feet in it. He says, this enemy is nothing but, but the place where I get rid of my dirt. 
He says of Edom, I, I cast my shoe upon Edom. Some think that it's, uh, uh, some commentators suggest that it's a, a claim of ownership to cast your shoe at. Others, others say, well, it's at the very least a sign of contempt. Perhaps it's of, of somebody coming home and, and they pull off their shoes and they throw their shoes at their servant. You know, take care of my dirty, stinking shoes. Right? Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. How can we not, if we think of Philistia, all these, in 2 Samuel 8, all these nations were talked of, of being defeated by David, but if we're talking about David having victory over Philistia, how can we not think of his victory over Goliath, the Philistine, right? The great victory that he won on behalf of God's people, not just a reminder that, that, that little people can accomplish big things with God on their side. No, that's not the message. The message is that of the anointed king of God's people stepping forward and defeating the giant on their behalf that they might enter into the spoils of his victory. Just as we, Christ's people, have not lifted a finger to help him in his victory over our enemy, and yet he has conquered for us. And so David asks, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? He's, he's wondering, how is this going to happen? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth with our armies. O grant us help, for vain is the salvation of men. He remembers that there's nothing that he can do apart from God. I'm reminded of the words of Jack Miller. He says, cheer up, church. You're worse off than you think. Right? We're so lost in our sin that there's nothing we can do. But at the same time, we are so loved by God in Christ Jesus that we can't be lost, that we cannot lose. Victory is ours, and we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. For he has died for our sins. He has paid the price already, and we have victory in him with God we shall do valiantly, verse 12. It is he who will tread down our foes. It is he who, who defeats the enemy on our behalf. It's, it is he who has absorbed all that death has to throw at him. And he has exhausted it us. He has exhausted it. I think of the rumble in the jungle as it was back in 1974. The boxing match between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman, wherein Ali was a huge underdog, and George Foreman threw everything at him for seven rounds, punching away and punching away, and Ali just leaned back against the ropes and absorbed punch after punch after punch. In the seventh round, Foreman was getting more and more and more tired. He finally connected with Ali's jaw with all that he had. And Ali said, that all you got, George? Foreman knew he had lost, and around later he would be on the canvas, defeated, having expended all of his energy, all that he had, everything in his arsenal on Ali, and realizing it was not enough. And that is what Christ has done. Just like Ali, he has pulled a rope-a-dope on sin, death, and Satan. He's absorbed all that they have to throw at him, and it was not you got Satan. It's not enough. And so 
three days later after Jesus absorbed death, the tomb was left empty and he stood victorious. And that is why we can joyously proclaim the death of our Lord. You know, our church here is named Calvary. Calvary is the hill where the cross was. We wear crosses as necklaces and put them up as pretty decorations. The cross was an executioner's device. It was an instrument of torture. But it's been transformed by the power of Christ. And so here we come to this table to proclaim the Lord's death and to partake of this meal that he has given to his people. We do so, not be, we do so because, because his death was not the end of the story. He ultimately defeats death. So that death is now dead. His death is the means by which we might have life. The means by which we might do valiantly. So let us come to this table now. Let us come to this table, but before we do, let us proclaim together our common faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. You'll find it printed in your bulletin if you'll pull that out.